Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the African Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Thomas Zuber. I'm thrilled to introduce today Dr. Ndwezi Mba, Associate Professor in the Department of History at University of Buffalo. We'll be discussing his book, Emergent Masculinities, Gendered Power and Social Change in the Biafran Atlantic Age, published in 2019 with Ohio University Press. The book was awarded the Association for the Study of the Worldwide African Diaspora, ASWAD 2020, Roslyn Turberg uh, Penn Book Prize for Outstanding Original Scholarship on Gender and Sexuality, and was finalist for the ASWAD 2020 First Book Prize, as well as the African Studies Association 2020 Best Book Prize. Dr. Mba, thank you for being here and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, so thank you very much for being here and welcome. Um, and uh, to begin, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to the study uh, of African history. Thank you. My, um, I, my introduction to African studies uh, began in Nigeria. Um, I did my undergraduate studies, uh, BA in history and international studies at the University of Nigeria in Suka. I graduated with first class honors and was a Varobes graduating student in 2007. And that was what brought me to the attention of Professor Wanda Achebe, who was then at Michigan State University. Um, she recruited me from the University of Nigeria on a distinguished fellowship in African history to Michigan State University. And she became my mentor. Uh, for my, uh, because of my doctoral training and since and afterwards has been um, a, a most gracious mentor. My, so when I think about my introduction to African studies and African history specifically, that story really begins um, at the University of Nigeria. Um, there is, um, um, the curriculum is very much steeped within uh, decolonial history, decolonial methodologies, uh, with um, an enormous emphasis on um, local African sources of knowledge, particularly the documentation of oral collection and documentation of oral histories, material culture, and rituals. So for my BA in history, I wrote a thesis on a community history um, in southeastern Nigeria based on over 90 oral interviews that I conducted um, in addition to immersive ethnography and field work and um, use of extensive local archives. So these are not a, uh, these are archives in addition to the Nigerian National Archives at Enugu, for example, in the region where I work. But these, I'm talking about 
uh, local community archives and community libraries and people's homes and so on and so forth and local history. So that is the orientation of African history that um, I gained by virtue of my training in Nigeria. And that is um, the orientation of African history with an emphasis on decoloniality that also shaped my approach to my doctoral program at Michigan State University. So um, I will stop there for now. Thank you. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, and after this introduction, uh, let's maybe turn to the book. Um, you've given us a fascinating long durée history of shifts in gendered power in Ohafia and the Baida Biafra in the wake of the Atlantic slave trade and colonialism. And you focus on two um, social constructs, as you uh, call them. Um, maybe tell us about the transformations that you're tracking and specifically mm. use the term of gendered Atlantization and what you mean by that. Thank you. So the gendered power shifts among the Ohafia was the original inspiration for my research, my dissertation research, which informed the book, Imagine Masculinities. But what encouraged me to frame uh, my research findings in broader Atlanticization terms was teaching an undergraduate seminar in comparative slavery, African-American and the Caribbean, uh, first at Davidson College and then subsequently at um, the State University of New York at Buffalo. The broader historiography shows that throughout the modern Atlantic, both slavery and emancipation took gendered forms and ultimately um, defined the emergence of male persons in dominant sociopolitical positions, <clears throat> uh, which corresponded with the subordination of women. And this was something that happened across North and South America, as well as in West and Central Africa. So there's sort of a broader um, Atlanticization context of gendering that shaped the birth of modern nations in the modern Atlantic world. The local mechanisms mediate and mediating factors like uh, race, ethnicity, religion, um, political and, and imperial systems, of course, may have differed significantly, but the parallels and outcomes were similar and comparable. So imagine masculinities not only work with this theory of uh, gender Atlanticization, but exemplifies the their implications um, in the Bida Biafra region. Um, especially in chapter three of the book, I offer a comparative reading of gendered slavery in the Bida Biafra and the British Caribbean colony of Jamaica. As you would have seen from actually in chapters three, four, and five, Ogaranya, which was the hegemonic masculinity of wealth ownership, as well as the translation of wealth into political authority. So that's what Ogaranya means. Ogaranya was a specific configuration of gender power and sexuality. By the 20th century, it had become both hegemonic and subversive. Um, so for scholars to identify the ways that African peoples performed 
Ogaranya. It was not, it, this would involve not merely identifying wealthy or powerful people, whether male or female, but rather it requires analyzing the social meanings of the wealth and power that those people acquired, specifically how their privileged status enabled them to dominate their society's conceptions of gender and sexuality, to mobilize and exploit the reproductive and other bodily capacity of subordinated peoples, and how that Ogaranya enabled them to uh, mediate Atlantic exchanges, the domestication of uh, cross-Atlantic commodities, the um, you know, institutionalization within African communities, as well as challenge of European colonial heteropatriarchal systems of labor um, and governance. Uh, and so Ogaranya, as I use it in imagined masculinities, uh, really captures the embodied as well as performative forms of sociopolitical power that African peoples used um, to um, domesticate, sort of to translate transatlantic economic exchanges within their own communities. Uh, so from that perspective, we can better understand both the violence and the limitations of European imperialism in Africa. Uh, in this case, specifically in West Africa. So gendered Atlanticization is, in my view, the most prominent innovation in emergent masculinities because it describes simultaneously the extensive transformations in gender, sexuality, and institutions within African societies that resulted from these transatlantic interactions, as well as how the agencies and consciousness of African peoples themselves in the region of the Bride of Biafra shaped Atlantic systems of exchange and outcomes in the Americas. So by focusing on West Africa, specifically the Bride of Biafra and within the, the Ohafia communities, I'm able to show over a long period of time from the 17th century to the, to the 20th century, how Atlantic interactions, transatlantic interactions, facilitated the masculinization of sociopolitical power. Um, and, and what this also means then, and to be able to do this kind of history, it, it means that we need both anthropological Histor and historical modes of evidence gathering and interpretation. Um, and because gender Atlanticization is a framework that captures the diverse ways that hinterland communities of West Africa in this case. Um, so that is beyond the Atlantic coast, right? So those in the hinterland, how do we are not territorialized, spatially bounded, culturally homogeneous and disconnected from global processes. Rather, they were major participants in globalization, in transatlantic systems of exchange, in violence, in, in, in you know, advancing inequalities, uh, creating social differentiation, 
um, and transforming intergroup relations that had implications not just for the, the immediate region, but also for the broader Atlantic world. So that is sort of the broad scope of perspective um, of, of, uh, of, of the perspective of masculinity, gendering, and gendered Atlanticization that I explore in the book. And I, I, I'll be happy to tease out you know, elements of this um, in the course of our conversation. Yes, that's wonderful. Thank you very much. And I think uh, you brought up the question of needing to use a variety of different methodologies and sources to do this type of both very fine grain uh, work, but also uh, long durée and uh, analysis of shifts over times. And I was wondering um, if you could uh, tell us a little bit more about how you navigated uh, analyzing the different sources you worked with. You have really an, um, really an impressive uh, breadth of different uh, methods and sources uh, from oral tradition, oral history, um, and uh, archival work, ethnography that you, that you mobilize for, uh, for this work. Oh, thank you. Um, so, the, and I, I want to start by just acknowledging that I, I walk on the shoulders of, you know, um, other scholars who have done the difficult work of establishing um, the, not just a, a respectable presence, but a deep appreciation for non-written sources of history for understanding African societies of the past. Um, the, you know, the, I feel that the battle has been fought and that those battles enable me to do the kind of work that I, I do in, I've done in emergent masculinities. Um, so I want to start by just highlighting what it meant to enter into that conversation as um, an emerging scholar of African history. So Ohafia is the only matrilineal society in Igbo land. So that is the Igbo speaking regions of Southeastern Nigeria. There are multiple other ethnicities there, but the Igbo are the dominant uh, ethnic group in the region of Southeastern Nigeria. And Ohafia is only only society, Igbo society with a dominant matrilineal system of kinship reckoning. What this I, this was um, was curious to me. My mentor at the University of Nigeria, Onkanjoku, is from Ohafia, from this society, um, and. One of the, in, sort of in trying to, my initial um, effort to educate myself about uh, Ohafia led me down a path where I, I immersed myself in an extensive body of work um, done by various anthropologists on, on matrilineage within African societies. So ranging from the matrilineal belt of South Central Africa, East Africa, um, to you know, debate about you know whether this was an enduring uh, lineage system that could survive capitalism and modernity. So one of the contradictions that we see 
that I, I noticed early on is that matrilineal or matrilineal systems we are represented primarily within African anthropology as something that was um, vulnerable to modernity and capitalism, that with the onslaught of capitalism and modernity, that um, matrilineal systems will crumble and be replaced by patrilineal systems, right? Um, and then there's this, uh, uh, what uh, historian Walter Hawthorne uh, critiques as the predatory state thesis, which uh, subsumes non-centralized African societies. It's a sort of a term that I, I, I that's sort of, it's um, difficult, has, it's sort of amb- um, problematic. Um, Basically, African societies that do not have uh, centralized institutions of govern- government, um, where there were no kings and queens, but rather, ref- you know, societies that relied on more conciliar mm-hmm. systems of governance. So um, there's the tendency in slavery scholarship to represent those societies as the mere captives, mere uh, captive sources and victims are. Uh, of more centralized state neighboring them, right? And so that's the predatory state thesis. Uh, and it's, it's also, there's an assumption there that so-called non-centralized states did not, could not have developed the centralized state structures and mili- such as and military systems necessary for extensive military slave production. And so Ahafia stood out again as this contradiction to that narrative because here was a so-called non-centralized state that... Uh, was the major um, arm of military slave production in the region of the Battle of Biafra. Mm. And then another sort of contradiction early on was just the duality of a matrilineal society that was also a warrior society. Um, And, you know, the Victor Turner in his work among the Ndembu, you you know, curiously observed that the Ndembu, uh, the men among Ndembu, in the Ndembu societies um, develop ma- you know, militant masculinist systems of economic pursuit, such as hunting, in order to <laughs> escape from the realities of living in a matrilineal and matriarchal society. So there were all of these sort of uh, theories of matriliney and anachronism, anachronistic representations of matrilineal societies that uh, made me very curious about the Ohafia Ibo. So this was sort of my entree uh, into that um, conversation. And then getting into Ohafia um, for my pre-dissertation research early on, I was just overwhelmed by how much history was alive. And what I mean by that is that Early on, I found myself doing a, a, a documentary. I started a documentary that I entitled Living History, just because of how much people in the community narrated the past, invoked narratives of the past in explaining what was happening currently, um, you know, conflicts, social, you know, inter-community and inter-individual conflicts, often uh, mobilized the past and narratives of the past. Uh, lineages were very much operative in, on, on a day-to-day basis in the way that people 
talked about belonging in the way that property was transferred, um, in the way that people are affiliated with being identify themselves as being an unhappy person. Uh, there were, a, you know, a diverse rituals of political governance, of healing, community and individual healing, um, performed by men and women. Uh, the, you know, historical memory, it seems to have, it was, the environment was saturated with historical memory. He, he had, you know, performative traditions such as the war dance, uh, that 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 happened. I mean, these dances were performed on a weekly basis, whether it's at a funeral or at a uh, uh, a birthday celebration or a retirement celebration, um, or or to mark the opening of you know community you know ceremonies. And these were performances of the past, in which. Uh, specially trained dancers and narrators record the past and danced the past and the community participated in that conversation. There were um, the, every every village in, um, in the Ohafia region has an, um, an ikoro, which is this extensive wooden drum that is used on, you know, often, recurrently, and that has a um, and there are these narratives about the Ikoro and experiences of the Ikoro that is shared widely and popularly. There are Inqua traditions commemorating the legacies of the transatlantic slave trade. And these Inqua are basically wooden sculptures representing slaving, slave owning, wealth, uh, political leadership, uh, intergroup relations. And they're basically museums. Uh, and there are several of them in this, among these communities. So I saw overwhelming evidence of cultural nationalisms, right? Um, in these communities that spoke to the past. And then on top of that, when people, when, you know, local people try to tell me about this history, they use the idiom of cutting a head, uh, which was a common discourse that reflected emic understanding, internal understanding of the past, that emphasize continuities and discontinuities over extensive historical periods. So whether we're dealing with oral traditions, the war dance, family and lineage histories, accounts of intergroup relations, or even cases, case studies from community memory that situate individuals within these statuses of slavery and colonialism, tradition, modernity, gender, sexuality, all of these stories, all of these memories, and how they are recorded, went against the dominant tendency in African history, which disconnected the period of the Atlantic slave trade from the era of European colonialism. It went against the notion that the 20th century was this ethnographic baseline for radical shift in African history. These local memories emphasize rather continuities, and they beckoned for the historian to investigate how those shifts happened, what happened exactly during those shifts, rather than explaining the results of those shifts. So these are the early methodological um, inspirations that shaped the way that I approached my work, uh, my research uh, for Imagine Masculinities, it meant that 
the research then began with the, the you know the Ahafia community itself um and the colonial archives and missionary archives and diverse Atlantic archives and the transatlantic slave database uh slave trade database and the parliamentary papers all of uh, you know uh, all the, the records of the company of merchants, all of those things became secondary to the work I had to do to understand how people in this region understood their past. Um, and they're using those uh, community histories to interrogate the diverse Atlantic archives, as I described them, which are used in imagined masculinities. Uh, the last thing I want to say about this is that at the end of all that research um, and re reflecting about about how to explain my methodology, how you know, I I I, I basically uh, embrace this notion that all forms of historical knowledge, that is, all historical sources. Are discourses. Some of these discourses are written down, they may become archives. Others are oral and communities narrate them. Um, some are performative, we see them in the war dances. Um, some are commemorative, we see them in the material culture. So, through this perspective of historical knowledge as discourses, interpenetrative discourses, um, I was able to uh, approach the Longudure narrative of this non-literate West African society um, in a way that places local discourses alongside diverse Atlantic discourses. Uh, and what that also reveals is that to lose focus of oral traditions and those performative histories is to overlook African indigenous historical discourses to overlook the ways that Africans understand themselves, the ways that they understand the authentic past. It raises a question about whose history are we writing when we marginalize those local sources of history? Whose voices are we representing? What genres of Historical narratives, are we privileging over others? Who, what collective consciousnesses are we overlooking? Um, how do we get at a shared sense of history that communities possess? And, and in my view, no other historical, no other form of historical knowledge system is comparatively rich with the possibilities that one is confronted with when they engage local sources of history in all of their manifestations. Wonderful. Thank you very much for uh, those perspectives. And so maybe now we can jump into um, the kind of uh, the empirics of the book and especially your analysis of oral traditions and, um, and rituals. And especially um, in the early parts of the books, you use oral traditions really as an uh, entry to understand the role of female authority uh, before the slave trade, but also 
how the slave trade transformed uh, the modalities of warfare, uh, notably of the social construct of ufiem that you mentioned and the meaning of uh, cutting heads uh, in battle. So maybe uh, you can uh, tell us a little bit more about this. Okay, thank you. So the uh, the primary uh, one of the one of the major uh, um, perspectives through which I approach oral history and and the sort of the political purpose that I wanted oral sources to serve in the book was to restore Ohafia women to history. So the stories of African women as historical agents rather than as victims or as beasts of burden rarely exist in the colonial archives, except occasionally when their rebelliousness posed a threat to the colonial administration. So in, in those circumstances, we may see that such as Igbo Women's War of 1929 or the Abiyokuta Women's Revolt of 1947. The, you know, women are brought into the masculinist colonial archives. Or when a comparatively few such African women brought their cases to patriarchal colonial courts, such as Abina Mansa did in Trevor Gates, uh, uh, Abina and the Important Men, or in Richard Roberts and Martin Klein's uh, uh, work where they explore how women in this region of Senegal, enslaved women in the region of Senegal, took advantage of the French colonial courts in the early 20th century to contest uh, their enslavement, marriage, child, uh, um, you know, uh, progeny, and property. So, but those are very incidental um, uh, cases, or in rarer instances, when such women as Ahebiu Babe became integrated into the British colonial system of rule, as Wanda Chebe writes in The Female King of Colonial Nigeria. What is notable that is even in such incidental cases as these, Afri the stories of African women are minimalized, marginalized, and incomplete, incomplete within the colonial archives, requiring extensive corroboration using a variety of methodologies. So on page 46 of Imagine Masculinities, I discuss how British District Officer uh, C.J. Main uh, cautiously noted in a section that was titled Ethnological that the Ohafia Igbo people had female kings. I mean, this was a huge right, <laughs> statement, but it was buried at the yeah. footnote of his extensive report. He did not include the female king in his colonial report about the Ohafia Igbo political system that he submitted to the British uh, um, state. Uh, yes, yeah, the, and same thing, this was a society with a dual sex political system in which the office of the female king was, up until the 19th century, a most powerful one. So I had to go move, therefore, then look beyond the archives uh, to look at oral histories, oral histories with men and women um, in Ohafia. Um, and in addition to that, I had to look towards uh, uh, political rituals, as I described them in the book. These were rituals that are still used as instruments of governance today um, and which had been instruments of governance in the past. And there are, you know, social uh, community uh, narratives 
about of this how these rituals were used in the past. So the the uh, oral history, uh, the study of rituals, um, and and uh, women's collective narratives of sitting on a man or um, you know uh, or, or the uh, this, uh, of of how they used um, the the women's with drum, for instance. Um, uh, which they describe as the vagina that consumed the wealth of men. Uh, so the attention to these uh, local histories of gendered political authority performance became critical, became a, a critical way to restore women to history, to historical narratives in which they had been silenced, marginalized, and effaced. Um, so, so I'm telling that story uh, I'm beginning with that story in the first chapter of the book does a number of things. Uh, it is It became critical to the major argument in the major masculinities, which is that up until the 1850s, uh, women in Ohio possessed more powerful political and economic institutions than men. Um, and what we see then, um, the major transition that we begin to see um, in the from, from the mid nineteenth century, really, are the repercussive impacts of Ohafia's participation in the Atlantic slave trade as people who use their military systems to generate captives from the Battle of Biafra, as people who forged intergroup relations and alliances with the Aro mercantile network, as people who protected trading networks. And who, as well, and as one of the chief groups of people that benefited uh, from the material culture of transatlantic exchanges, ranging from textiles to guns and um, and so on and so forth. So, uh, and how they use those um, forms of transatlantic exchange and intergroup alliances to build up new forms of male power, new forms of male privilege. Uh, you know, the fact that male warriors had access to slaves, to captives, privileged access to captives, um, privileged access to Atlantic commodities in ways that women did not. One of the initial shifts we see is that increasingly, warrior merchants and their access to alienable forms of wealth, which slaves or captives represented, and which Atlantic commodities like textiles and guns and other trade goods represented, enabled them to begin to challenge the primacy of women as the breadwinners in the region. Female breadwinner status have been premised on agrarian production, on the production of food, for community consumption and the production of surplus for regional and international trade. So the Atlantic slave trade opened up new gendered economies that male merchant warriors benefited the most from, um, which altered the um, economies of household relations, but also lineage and religious traditions. And so what I show in chapter two of the book then is 
how men who were directly involved in military slave production translated these economic gains of the transatlantic slave trade into the domains of religious and ritual authority, um, economic control of regional trading networks, and the formation of secret societies based on that privileged the domestication of violence um, and the and built ritual aura around the persona of warriors and develop new traditions of making warriors upon death into ancestors in ways that challenged the primacy of matrilineage matriarchs who had been the ones, those women leaders of matrilineage units, who had been the ones that had enjoyed the privilege of ancestral matriarchy through the raising of pot monuments. So there were these new secret societies that emerged in the 18th century and were spearheaded by male merchants who were directly involved in the in slave production that basically reinforced the power and the relevance of patrilineage units. So one of the things we see happening from the 18th century is the reinforcement of patrilineages in competition with the power and privilege of matrilineage units. So there's a, a certain level of sort of a unilineal dissent uh, uh, competition going on that was reflecting broader shifts in gendered access to wealth, um, gendered notions of um, um, uh, ancestorhood, um, religious salience, and eventually, eventually, not immediately, but eventually, political authority as well. And that narrative of shift in political authority I explore in chapters four and five. And now that you've given us an overview of these transformations in uh, uh, both political economy and in um, different power practices and social constructs, um, maybe we can shift to uh, one of, to your third chapter, which is. Uh, which changes uh, a little bit in geography and scale. And you show um, notably that uh, the Atlantization of people who didn't cross the Atlantic through gender inequality in Bight of Biafra and the enslavement of a majority of Igbo women in Jamaica, for example. And so tell us maybe the value of bringing Jamaica and Ohafia in dialogue and how the Ohafia um, ethnographic evidence was generative in uh, rereading the other sources that you use, the slave trade database, the company merchant testimonials, uh, for example. Mm -hmm. Okay. So thank you. So chapter three of the book is really um, a major anchor for the book as a whole. Um, it brings several threads um, together. So um, the, um, by, by the time we get to chapter ever, I've already established that there is a, a trend, an emerging trend of the masculinization of sociopolitical power um, in the Bight of Biafra 
as a men- it's as a as a major mechanism for uh, domesticating transatlantic political economies, whether they were you know through systems of exchange or materials of exchange, um, and and how and and their impacts within local communities. Um, and I have also by the time we get to um, uh, chapter three uh, clarified the the ways that UFM itself was being altered once again by the transatlantic slave trade. And that major alteration is a shift from a man going to war and bringing back human heads in the 17th century as a way to defend their communities against hostile neighbors because the Hafia were recent immigrants into the region and had to militarily defend their communities. And they entered a, a, a region, um, a multi-ethnic region, where headhunting was a mechanism of warfare. Um, and they had to learn that tactic of warfare and develop institutions such as age-grade institutions that form the basis of their military systems to adapt and survive in that bellicose frontier. Uh, and this, of course, was also... Um, Corresponding with the ways that uh, Ohasha women used um, marriage to cement alliances across ethnic groups. So, so by the time we get to chapter three, all of these things are clear. Um, I want I highlight them right. uh, just so that people get a broader context of what is happening in chapter three. So, in chapter Thank three, you. then in chapter three, then um, I focus on. And that phenomenon was the was female slavery and how female slavery or female captivity emerged as the dominant form of regional slavery in the Bight of Biafra during the 18th, during the second half of the 18th century. Um, I begin that story by explaining how Ogaranya persons, at this point predominantly male persons, used female captivity, especially the acquisition of slave wives, as an instrument of kinship expansion. Now, this is a story that's familiar to Africanists um, from the work of Myers and Capital and to the various revisionisms that followed in. Right. right. Um, and what, but what I do in the chapter is that I situate it within a contingent historical period during the Atlantic slave trade era to demonstrate social change. Not, and I says not to show how stable or benign African social kinship slavery systems were. So I, I my, um, my explanation of African kinship social slavery is historical. Uh, it is attuned to change over time. It is attuned to regional and transatlantic dynamics. So female captivity becomes an instrument for constructing and performing and consolidating male Ogaranya 
masculinity, which was a hegemonic form of masculinity. The other thing happening during this period where that Ogaranya individuals were usurping the political authority of traditional uh, rulers, male and female. Um, so Ogaranya was not just an economic endeavor, it, was, it had political political ramifications as well. It, it had ramifications for lineage expansion. It meant that individuals who were Ogaranya who could um, bring in slave wives from pat- neighboring patrilineal societies into matrilineal or hafia could build up their matrilineages and could therefore gain social prestige and maintain political authority and exercise those forms of authority in ways that had not been they had not been able to do before Ohafia's participation in the transatlantic slave trade, right? right. Um, and so men were imagined therefore through uh, their practice of female captivity and the incorporation of slave wives into uh, lineage systems as leaders and shapers of Ohafia matrilineages. Uh, you know, this is quite different from the picture we see in within chapter one, where that had been the central role of women in the community. Um, so what I describe this as a cis-Atlantic history of the of, of the Ohafia region and the Bidot Biafra broadly, the, to explain how the, the region's inter, uh, transatlantic uh, exchanges and participation in transatlantic slave trade uh, transformed local practices of social ascendancy, of political rulership, of economic power, and of lineage building and family building. Right, so that is one thing that I do in chapter three, is is a, a cis Atlantic uh, history. The other thing that I do in that chapter is to show that what was happening in Hafia was not all that um, exceptional within a broader Atlantic context. So when we look at the same time period in Jamaica, we see that we see the salience in the record, historical records of Jamaican plantations, we see the salience of Igbo women, so women from the Battle of Biafra. Um, of course, in the chapter, I clarified that um, uh, transatlantic e- ethnic designations are not definitive uh, reflections of ethnic identities of West African captives. Of course. Right? Uh, that they reflect more uh, region ports of embarkation, in this case, Old Calabar and Bonnie, mm-hmm. more than the actual ethnic provenances of the captives themselves. But what they do also show was that majority of the captives from the Battle of Biafra were Igbo, of the Igbo-speaking peoples. Um, and, that, and that beyond that, uh, Majority of the captives identified um, from the Battle of Biafra identified on Jamaican plantations were deemed Igbo, not the IGBO, but EBOE, right? Right. Um, and and I explain, you know, sort of the um, the, the sort of the blind spots of this sort of a uh, ethnogenesis debate in the history of the, of, of West Africa's uh, transatlantic slave trade and New World cultural formation. Um, but I do call attention to how uh, focusing on the experiences of enslaved women from the region in Jamaica 
reveals an important similarity and commonality. And that was that white male patriarchy, hegemonic masculinity, however we want to define it, in the second half of the 19th, 19th century, uh, in the second half of the 18th century in Jamaica, also uh, relied on the uses of Igbo women's captive bodies for sex, for reproduction, and for agrarian labor, which were very much correspondent with the ways that the bodies of Igbo female captives were used at the same time period in the Bible of Biafra. That, therefore, shows that this transatlantic history of female slavery that I do in that chapter as well. So that is the second Atlantic history work I do in that chapter. In addition to the cis-Atlantic, I do a transatlantic history of comparative female slavery of Biafran and Igbo captive women in Jamaica and Igbo land to show how female captivity and bodily uses of Igbo female slaves underpinned hegemonic masculinities in the Battle of Biafra as well as in British colonial Jamaica during the same time period, right? Um, the third work that I do in that chapter is to show, um, as you rightly put it, the ways that people who never crossed the Atlantic nonetheless shaped the Atlantic system or embodied Atlanticization. Um, in this case, uh, I examine how the military practices of Ohafia warriors shaped the age and gender structure of the Battle of Biafra's British Atlantic slave trade. So how it shaped the demography of captives taken from the Battle of Biafra into the British Atlantic um, colonies of the Americas. Uh, primarily in the Caribbean, uh, of which Jamaica is the most important during this time period. So, so those are the three uh, forms of Atlant gendered Atlantic history or gendered Atlanticization history focused on female slavery that I do in Chapter 3 of Imagined Masculinities. Thank you very much. And I think maybe we'll shift to the last part of the book, which uh, focuses on a slightly different, uh, slightly different questions. Um, and uh, notably, you look at how people relied on really colonial imperatives to reshape social dependencies and power around economic opportunities and gendered norms. And uh, here you do this really in part through uh, life histories of a few key figures that are illustratives of the shifts in uh, class and gender formation. So maybe let's first talk about um, Kalu Uwama, uh, Uwam, um, and who was enslaved and then became a slave owner and how he's representative of um, maybe the transformations uh, in um, in uh, Ogaranya masculinity um, in the 19th century. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I explain how biographical texts, like the one that Carlo Wama wrote, 
we are products of peculiar gendered environments. Um, it, it, it reflected uh, the ways that emancipation in the modern Atlantic were gendered practices, that enslaved men and women did not have equal opportunities to gain emancipation. Um, the broader scholarship shows that whether it was the Americas or in French West Africa um, or in Louisiana or the French Caribbean, um, that captive women relied significantly on kinship and intimacy to negotiate emancipation, whereas captive men predominantly relied on military service to do so. So we see that across the modern Atlantic, um, irrespective of the region we are looking at. Kalu reflected and embodied those gender differentials of emancipation in the Bible of Biafra. It is not possible to understand the local meanings of Ufiem and Ogaranya as performed by a male ex-slave like Kalo Wama, or even women like Onyango Kanotuago, whom I discussed in chapter five, and how those local meanings change over time. If we do not also understand several things. One, how the region's Atlantic transactions transformed the modes of lineage affiliation and expansion, economic social mobility, and the acquisition of political authority and social prestige. These, this particular set um, of correlates, which we've been discussing, we are factored into why Carlo wrote an autobiography and how he wrote his autobiography, right? Uh, the second is that we will need to understand how the violence of the transatlantic slave trade and British colonialism in particular created the erasure, effacing, masking of the histories and agencies of non-elite men, uh, including ex-slaves like Carlo. So Carlo's autobiography is unique in several respects. Um, it is one of a handful of slave biographies that exist for the region of the Battle of Biafra. Um, it, it is, apart from Olaudi Ukwiano's narrative, it is the one of only two narratives that explain what the explain the experience, personal experience, experience of enslavement in the hinterlands of the Bible of Biafra, as well as on the coastal states of the Bible of Biafra. So I, I wanted to begin with Carlos' um, autobiography because it is um very important has and has been overlooked in the broader uh literature on slave biographies actually atlantic slave biographies and west african slave biographies um so carlo goes from being a uh, a child slave um kidnapped uh sold on the coast uh living on the coast and, and working as a coastal slave um um, and then eventually becoming integrated into his master's household, serving with the British West African Frontier Force in the um, military 
subjugation of Akwete, one of the um, intracoastal states um, in southeastern Nigeria, and then ultimately leading the British forces to Ohafia, where he negotiated Ohafia's capitulation to the British, and then served as one of the guides that led the British West African Frontier Force to Arochuku, which was uh, destroyed in 1901, 1901-1902. Um, so I tried to ex explore the possible motivations for Carlo's behavior. Why did he lead the British back to Ohio? Why did he lead the British forces to Arachuku? Um, I raised those questions because uh, while Carlo was trying to make his way back from the coast to Ohio in the hinterland, um, he was re-enslaved by the Arrow. We cannot uh, establish a clear causality right, uh, between his act and his um, re-enslavement by the Arrow. But we know that those two things happen. Um, Kali is also very uh, unique because um, he, you, after he returns to Haifa successfully, um, he used slave ownership to secure his own freedom against re-enslavement. Uh, and he tenaciously held on to uh, slaving practices despite being um, a mouthpiece of the British colonial government uh, in ways that the British state overlooked his slaving practices um, and even Christian missionary missions overlooked his slaving practices. Um, and this reflected a broader uh, history of political alliances between colonial states and African rulers uh, that underpinned the survival of slavery systems and the expansion of slavery practices after the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade in West Africa. Um, but beyond that, Carlo also reflected um, what was a, 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 a broader regional transformation in West Africa, which was this, that because of because formerly enslaved people were the first to embrace Christianity, uh, become literate, they, were, they, they constituted the vanguard of the educated elite who would serve as colonial administrators and clerks and, and warrant chiefs, right? Um, and who would usurp the political authority of traditional male and female political rulers. So there is a certain uh, revolutionary class formation going on as well that Carlo re uh, reflects, um, and one that continues to um, haunt the histories of communities rural communities in the region of Southeastern and Jova, chieftains to struggles and struggles uh, between um, chiefs claiming autochthony uh, and ancestral right to rulership versus chiefs established under British colonial rule and so on and so forth. Thank, thank you very much. And maybe um, you mentioned uh, at the beginning of, of your answer to uh, the previous question, also your focus on, uh, on certain women who notably resisted uh, these forms of disempowerment, while also perhaps paradoxically 
reinforcing certain masculinist uh, conceptions uh, of Oberania. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those figures and uh, at that time? Yeah. Definitely. So women like Onyangoka and Otuago were Ohasia um, women who were identified as female heads of their matrilineage, uh, matrilineages, um, but who performed uh, dynamic gender identities and sexualities. Um, during the late 19th century and the early 20th century. Um, you are absolutely correct that these women uh, challenge um, uh, simple historical narratives. On the one hand, they were, um, they, they, became, they became husbands um, well, first they were wives to men, um, and then they became husbands who married women. Um, they, some of their economic pursuits, such as becoming medicine men, or you know, or, uh, as medical practitioners, which was a masculine profession, uh, led to their social perception as as masculine. Uh, in addition to the fact that they were husbands, which led to their social perception as uh, men. Um, uh, whereas Otuago uh, married a wife and became a medicine man to um, at, to basically fulfill Ohafia notions of hegemonic femininity, basically to she did not have a daughter and she needed a daughter to succeed her as the leader of her matrilineage and she married a wife in order to get a daughter to do that. This was not deemed dissident. This was not deviant sexuality. This was not queer. This was quite normative, okay? Within Ohafia tradition, this was quite normal. This was a normative practice from that perspective. Uh, similarly, women like um, um, Unyangoka, uh, did similar things, married a wife, um, but also was a, became an important slave trader comparable to Abu Okweyo for summary, uh, who has uh, been studied and is better known. Um, but Unyangun also became a wealthy money lender um, who imprisoned her male debtors when they refused, when they could not pay back. Um, she married wives for various relatives uh, she acquired slave wives, multiple slave wives for herself. Um, and these slave wives had children that uh, belonged to Nyangoka and that ex- helped her to expand her matrilineage of Ubobobi matrilineage uh, into one of the most powerful lineages in Ahasia in the late 19th century and early 20th century. Um, Again, from an indigenous, uh, local, rather, uh, perspective, what Onyaunka was doing was not different from what Ohafia women had done in the past, right? But there was something that was changing in the late 19th and early 20th century, and that was British colonial rule and Scottish Presbyterian Christianity. They, these two forces had introduced notions of gender, specifically heteropatriarchal monogamous marriage as a norm 
of modernity, Christianity, and colonial subjecthood. Um, and uh, British economic and educational policies had also fostered educated male bread, waged breadwinners as heads of household and as people accountable to the state in ways that women were not. And uh, both colonial and Christian missionary institutions sought to define African women as domesticated, subordinated wives to support these male-waged breadwinners, right? So when we, um, within that context then, uh, the British state and Christian missionaries perceived women like Onyangoka and Otuago as gender and sexual deviants, as dissidents. And that is, it is therefore in their relationship to the colonial state and to Christian missionaries within the changing social order of their society that we can better comprehend their dissident sexualities and politics. Um, and what those women then uh, demonstrate are uh, the diverse ways in which slave owning continued to define Ufian, um, but that the social meanings attached or that, 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 that are derived from those forms of performances were changing as a result of European colonial encroachment. Um, Onyangoka, in particular, was deemed a man. Otua was described by local sources as somebody who performed Ushim, um, as husband and as Dibia. Onyangoka was, de was described as a man, so that she performed trans identity, if you were to put it in a Euro-American language, which is something that I, I, I resisted doing in my book because of what it does to indigenous understanding of Nyanka's identity. But if we were to translate it sort of to an Euro-American uh, contemporary, um, recent, you know, present day uh, uh, language, it would be sort of a trade trans um, uh, discourse. Uh, she cross-dressed. Uh, she did not tie wrappers. She wore the loincloth. She dressed as a male warrior, bare-chested. She wore the, you know, uh, uh, male warrior headdress um, with eagle feathers. She danced with the uh, uh, heads cut from battle uh, in performance of her ufiem. Uh, she was not just a ritual man, she was deemed a man. Uh, and so she, she did not just perform hegemonic masculinity or ufiem, she performed manhood um, by the tenets of Ohafia notions of manhood. Um, the other thing and what these stories uh, of such women then bring up is the ways, the, those what I began with, which were those continuities and departures or discontinuities. The Ohafia speak about these transformations from the era of the transatlantic slave trade through the era of colonial rule as continuities and practices of cutting ahead. So they describe shifts from times when men went to war and came back with human heads to describe a period of history where the society was trying to survive a bellicose frontier. And they describe as cutting ahead uh, 
men going to war and returning with captives, slave, captives who become enslaved instead of human heads. And those captives became equated with heads that men caught in battle. Uh, they define as cutting a head a period when men went uh, away and returned with trading wealth. Um, when men went away and returned with academic certificates, when men went away um, and returned with Mercedes Benz. Uh, while I was doing my research in the field, my 2002 uh, Nissan Maxima was deemed a head I had caught in battle, right? right? So the idiom of cutting a head was an indigenous discourse right. of uh, masculinity and accomplishment uh, that characterized the ways that hinterland peoples made sense of transatlantic exchanges and their repercussions. Wonderful. Uh, thank you very, very much for this uh, broad and very comprehensive overview of your book, which is a very uh, just exciting and uh, thorough uh, analysis of, uh, of this uh, uh, over long durée of these uh, transformations uh, in Ohafia. Uh, before we conclude, uh, I was wondering if you could tell uh, us maybe uh, briefly about what you're currently working on and what uh, current projects you're uh, you're developing. Thank you. So currently, I'm working on a second book monograph um, it, uh, entitled "Rebellious Migrants: Forging Abolition, Cosmopolitan Identities, and Postcolonial Spaces in West Africa, 1840s to 1960s. It is a history of coerced mobilities and their gendered repercussions, beginning with the story of liberated Africans from the Bight of Biafra who were emancipated in Freetown, Sierra Leone, but returned to Old Calabar in the 1840s and 50s uh, and uh, developed local practices for practices of abolitionism that basically created new forms of slave, slavery and human trafficking, which in turn laid the foundation for uh, uh, forced, forced recruitment of laborers from the region of the Bight of Biafra for the Spanish colonial island of Fernando Po, uh, German Victoria colony of, of, um, of German colony of Victoria and Cameroon, and French Gabon. Uh, and so I'm looking at the gender uh, practices of um, new slavery practices um, and their repercussions. Um, the agencies, uh, focusing on the agencies of uh, Bight of Biafran, specifically East, Southeastern Nigerian men and women in, in shaping the development of these new slavery practices that were trans-imperial and intercolonial in the region of West Africa between the 1840s and 1960s. This project has been sponsored by the American Council of Learned Societies and by various institutional grants. Um, I have forthcoming articles from the project in uh, History in Africa and Radical History Review. Um, and um, I'm hoping to uh, conclude a contract for the monograph with Cambridge. That's wonderful. Well, we look yeah. forward to uh, reading these articles and uh, the monographs uh, soon. Uh, and thank you very much for your time and for uh, this really fascinating conversation.
Thank you so much, Thomas, uh, for the thorough reading of the book and for your very insightful questions.